the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. While the sporting rivalries of the superpowers dominated the world's headlines and imaginations, there was another ongoing rivalry just as passionate unfolding in East Asia, namely between China and Taiwan. This again was a battle of ideologies played out in sport, and as Andrew Morris of California Polytechnic State University now explains, it was more fundamental than that, actually. It was a fight for the right to call yourself the true China. China and Taiwan really had a completely conflicting perspective, didn't they? Yes, after 1949, there were two competing Chinas in the world of international sport. The People's Republic of China on the mainland and the Republic of China on Taiwan, which had fled the mainland to the only province that they still ruled after 1949. And both of them claimed to be the legitimate ruler of China, and both of them used international sport as a way to explain and demonstrate that claim. And the relations between the two countries um, weren't really very courteous, were they, or very polite? In fact, you might describe some of the language as rather fruity. Yes, there were truly no direct relations between both regimes. Again, both both insisted that they were the only representative of China and that the other one was, was evil, was wrong, did not deserve to exist. And so on one side, the, the communist government would refer to the Republic of China government as shameless running dogs and jackals of U.S. imperialism, the Chiang Kai-shek clique. The ROC, on the other hand, would describe the communist government as the communist bandits, the Mao Zedong-led um, tyrannical and vile uh, bandit clique. And e- each side had a whole array of, of terms they used to describe the other. But the main idea was that their side was the rightful government of China and the other side had to be destroyed as, as soon as possible. There isn't a great deal of middle ground between those two positions, is there? None. And, and this carried over into the sports world where both sides took this idea seriously that they could be the only... Uh, rightful government of China, and that is to say both insisted that they would be the only representative at any international sporting event. Both insisted that if the other were to be there, they would leave. And so this happened again and again in the Olympics. If one side showed up to the Olympics first, then the other side would refuse to show up. Or if one side's flag went up, then the other side would leave. They would have to withdraw. There was no space for them to to participate in this event as a split nation. There was no such system as with the two Germanys or the two Koreas where there could be a split nation system where one side could abide the existence of the other side. Each, each side, again, insisted that they were the only rightful side and their allies could only recognize them. If, if one country recognized the other, then they, were, they no longer would have relations with that one side of the ROC or, or the PRC. So they're one country split by two ideologies. Absolutely. That must have made life very difficult for the organisers of these events. The boycotts of 1980 and 1984 are much more famous with 
um, the U.S. and its allies boycotting the Moscow Olympics and then the Soviet Union and their allies boycotting the 1984 Olympics. But this boycott culture actually started in 1952 between Taiwan and China. Um, in 1952, the PRC athletes get to Helsinki first, and so the ROC pulls their athletes. In 1956, it's the, it's the opposite. The ROC athletes participate, but this time the PRC, PRC agents have a trick waiting for them. And when the, the Olympic Village puts the ROC flag up, or means to put the ROC flag up, they've actually switched the flag and the PRC flag goes up instead. So there's this whole system of skullduggery and tricks uh, going on between the two sides, meant to sabotage the other and cement their own status as the rightful government of China. So sometimes it would come down to who's got the best travel agent. <laughs> yes, there's, there's another great story um, that has to do with this idea of, of who, can, who can be the, the first one to get there, who can be the participant. In 1960, with the Winter Olympics, the Squaw Valley, the PRC had been cleared out. They had left the International Olympic Committee in 1958, and Taiwan and the ROC saw a, a clear window to participate in the Winter Olympics. The only problem, of course, being that Taiwan is half in the tropical zone, and Winter Olympics are not a huge part of their culture there. They found the coldest place they could in Taiwan, which is an ice cream factory, and they rounded up four of the only skaters they could find in Taiwan, and they named them the Taiwan ice skating team that they would send in the 1960 Olympics. They weren't recognized by the International Ice Skating Union, so they couldn't truly represent the ROC in the Olympics but they were counted as an observation delegation at Squaw Valley, and the ROC flag was raised over the Olympic Village. And so for their intents and purposes, it was a victory. They were at the Olympics in even this meager form, and the PRC wasn't. And that was the level that they were after in terms of legitimacy and anything they could do to, to use sports to show that here we are, the rightful government of China. It sounds really like the intensity of the bickering and the rivalry was quite serious, but how did it work on the sports field? Which was the better sporting nation? Mm. The two sides would never face each other. Again, this, this stance meant that the two, until the 1980s, would, would never face each other. And even, I think even to the late 1980s, uh, the Taiwan side insisted they would never face communist athletes. Because the PRC left the International Olympic Committee in 1958 and didn't come back until 1979, the world never really got to see the skill of Chinese athletes and the incredible, incredible sports machine that they were putting together until 1984. Taiwan sent some brilliant athletes to the Olympics, most famous being C.K. Yang, a decathlete who is a Taiwanese Aborigine athlete who studied at UCLA, won a silver medal in Rome in 1960 and was favored to win the gold medal in Tokyo in the decathlon in 1964. But the PRC made sure that that didn't happen. They got to two of his teammates on the ROC team and they attracted them with offers to defect to the, to the mainland if they would drug his orange juice the day that the decathlon competition began. They did so and he ended up coming in fifth place. It was a great shock and a great disappointment to someone who had been called that year, the greatest athlete in the world. He was sure to win this gold medal for the ROC on Taiwan. But again, the PRC understood the magnitude of letting Taiwan win a gold medal before they did in the mainland, and it didn't happen. And again, it's, it's this level of, of back and forth that, that characterized 
this rivalry. And so we never got to see it on the sports fields in the Cold War period. It was really the, the late 1980s, early 1990s that this ever happened. By the 1980s, um, when, when China entered the Olympics, they had put together such an impressive sports system and culture that uh, the result was never in doubt after that point. And so, of course, they've become one of the truly great sporting countries on earth. Taiwan struggles to win a medal every year when they can in the Olympics. So really, this, in a way, that this is the beginning of China's emergence as a, as a great sporting nation. And maybe uh, that decathlon moment was possibly the high peak for Taiwan. That probably would have been. And there was such, there was such pressure on, on Yang, C.K. Yang. He was called the, the true representative of the modern Chinese man, Again, he was recognized as the greatest athlete on earth. And it's almost that the government of, of the, the ROC government on Taiwan, you could say in a way, almost brought this about. They put so much pressure on Yang. They celebrated this gold, this coming gold medal, this inevitable gold medal so much that the PRC had to do something about it. And by this time in Taiwan, you had all these mainlanders who had come to Taiwan in the late 1940s by 1964, some of them had been there for 15, 16, 17 years, and they want to go home. And the deal was never to go to Taiwan and stay there. The deal was to go to Taiwan, wait till Taiwan could reconquer the mainland, and then they could go back home. But there were a million mainlanders who had come to Taiwan in the late 1940s, were stuck there, and the PRC sporting authorities found two of them that wanted to go back, and evidently were more than willing to, to betray their teammate sabotage his chances and defect. And it turns out it's predictable for people that study China. They, in turn, um, were accused of being spies, and they were struggled against in the Cultural Revolution just a few, a few years later in the late 1960s for all the time they had spent in Taiwan. So it's really a sad story all around. I bet it was heartbreaking for Jung, though. Yes, it really... It really uh, seemed to destroy him and his, his image. And he actually would go on to, to coach the national track team. And he had a short-lived career in Hollywood. He acted in a few American films. He had a short-lived career in politics. But he was always known as this disappointment. He, and this, the story of him being drugged was, was top secret. It was not revealed until the mid-1990s, late 1990s. And so all anyone ever knew in Taiwan was that he was this incredible disappointment. And it, it's capped off kind of bizarrely where he becomes a resident shaman at a Taoist temple. And it's, in Taiwan, he was, he was uh, kind of pitied by the end of his career. He'd gone from being, again, the prototype of the modern Chinese man to being this strange disappointment who could just retreat into religion and, and shamanism. His silver medal performance in 1960 was celebrated. He studied at UCLA, trained at UCLA, and the gold medal winner that year was Rayford Johnson. And the two of them had a beautiful friendship that's been documented through the years. And there's wonderful footage of the two men congratulating each other after the, dec after the decathlon is over. And so in 1960, af after the Olympics of 1960, his image almost couldn't be more pure as a great athlete than after 1964. He's this incredible disappointment. And there's another part of the story that's also very interesting. As I mentioned earlier, he was 
an Aborigine. He's one of the, the, the Amis people, one of the original residents of Taiwan. These are the people that got to Taiwan about 15,000 years ago. And it's kind of tempting to wonder if he had won this gold medal in 1964, if that could have helped the status of Taiwan's Aborigines. Their participation in sport is a whole other really interesting part of, of 20th century history and Japanese rule in the earlier part of the 20th century. The Japanese, when they ruled Taiwan after 1895 through 1945, were after all these resources that were in the mountains of Taiwan, uh, camphor, marble, tea, and to get at those resources which were in the mountains where the Aborigines lived, they had to think of all these ways to kind of move these people out of the way, to civilize them, to ease their access to these resources. And so one of the really interesting legacies of Japanese rule is the Aborigine role in Taiwanese sports. And so C.K. Yang was the most famous of them, even though he's, he's more known for this great disappointment. Uh, but, but Taiwanese sports has these other really interesting stories that are part of the first part of the 20th century, which is the Japanese history. And then so it's really interesting after 1945 that that history becomes a Chinese history so quickly. So they go, they go from being a model colony of the Japanese empire now to a model province of the Republic of China and all the pressures that we talked about of, of representing the true nature of the Chinese government. If the Republic of China, if the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek could get one more chance in the mainland, that they could succeed. And so Chiang Kai-shek really has to do his best in Taiwan to show that he blew it once by the late 1940s, but this is his chance to show that he could put together a solid modern society in Taiwan. This era of boycotts and back and forth between the two sides started in 1952 and went through 1979. And at that point, the International Olympic Committee knew they had to get China into the fold. China was, was clearly too big of a government, too important of a government to leave outside of the international sporting community. On the other hand, China wanted no part of an IOC that continued to recognize the Republic of China as the rightful government of China. That couldn't stand. Taiwan had a population of something like 16 million, and the, Pe the People's Republic of China had a, a population of something like 900 million. So clearly, this has to be settled. And Deng Xiaoping, who had come back to power in 1978 in China, was really the author of how this would work, and he was the one who kind of figured out the best way to make this happen. And the IOC borrowed largely from his plan. And the result, after much negotiation, is that Taiwan and China both get to stay in the Olympic movement now. The PRC is the representative of China, and Taiwan can stay, but they can't be called the Republic of China. They can't even be called Taiwan. They can only be called Chinese Taipei. And so this is the origin of this very confusing term that people never really quite understand. Taipei is, of course, the capital of Taiwan, um, but it's it's meant to confuse. In fact, it's meant to make it sound like it's like Chinese Taipei is part of China proper. It's not part of the PRC, but as we were talking about earlier, the ROC has gotten themselves into this problem in the first place by insisting that they're the government of China. So in a way, Taipei is part of China. It's just a part of their own China, not the PRC's China. But since 1979, 
every major sporting organization and most major international organizations, period, have gone to this format of having the PRC as the representative of China and then having Taiwan join as Chinese Taipei. And so things like the World Health Organization uh, would be a classic example of that. Uh, many org organizations have actually kept Taiwan out because of this nomenclature problem, because uh, China didn't want Taiwan to be in these organizations, and there was pressure to make sure that they would be the only China involved. But Chinese Taipei is usually the way that this is settled. So this is a hangover from the, from the Cold War period that's still out there. Yes, and it manifests itself in all sorts of strange ways. One of the strangest things that happen is when there are international sporting events held in Taiwan, those events also use the Chinese Taipei formula. And at these international sporting events held in Taiwan, the ROC does not exist. The Republic of China on Taiwan does not exist. Therefore, waving an ROC flag is not allowed. And there's a very strange pattern, even in the, the 2000s, when sporting, international sporting events would be held in Taiwan, usually in Taipei in the capital. And residents of Taipei would have to be told not to bring their ROC flags. That is to say, they're not allowed to wave the ROC flag on ROC soil when it's part of an international sporting event. And even if you unveil an ROC flag, you will be told to put it away or you will be made to leave. And in fact, this happens in the Olympics as well. There's a famous case in 1996 at a ping pong match where an enthusiastic Taiwanese fan brought out their ROC flag and they were arrested by Atlanta police. So again, in, in the realm of international sports, the ROC is an intruder. It cannot exist by the standards of the Olympic formula of 1979. It's almost a ghost nation. Exactly. And that really mirrors its international standing as well. There are really, I think right now there are 22 nations that still recognize the ROC, and they're all very tiny. None of them are of any real consequence. I'm pretty sure the biggest one is Honduras. And most of these other nations are tiny island nations that frankly are, are bought off <laughs> and their allegiance to the ROC um, is, is paid for. And so it is, it is a strange thing to be a citizen of Taiwan when your passport doesn't count for very much around the world um, and you can't be a member of the United Nations. And there are members of the United Nations that are not even nations. Um, but here you have the Republic of China, a population now of 23 million, very wealthy, advanced, democratic country that, as far as the United Nations is concerned, doesn't exist. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. 
The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal. You can find out more about this project at 